The Adult Ballet Studio is a podcast featuring conversations with the empowering voices of the adult ballet community, a world where passion has no limits and dreams can take flight. My name's Elizabeth Lossfield, and I'm an adult ballet dancer and your host. Welcome to the studio. Happy Tutu Tuesday and happy December, everybody. It's the Doll Ballet Studio's final episode of 2023, but don't worry. This podcast will be back on January 2nd after the holidays. In the meantime, this episode is such a good one, and I'm so excited about the guests who joined the studio this month. We talked about ballet, we talked about opera, we talked about the Nutcracker, of course, since it's Nutcracker season. We talked about race, representation, and inclusion in ballet, and obviously we had to talk about adults in ballet, too. Our guest gave his best advice for adults at any age or level to get out of their heads and stop doubting their ability, and instead get into a dance studio and learn to create a space for themselves in ballet. Our guest is a choreographer, stage director, author, activist, and more. He does so much good for the ballet and arts community, and I was so excited to talk to him. Phil Chan is co-founder of Final Bow for Yellowface, an organization that works to improve representation of Asians in ballet and eliminate offensive stereotypes of Asians on stage. Phil co-founded the organization alongside Georgina Paskogan, former New York City ballet soloist, with a simple pledge that states, I love ballet as an art form and acknowledge that to achieve a diversity amongst our artists, audiences, donors, students, volunteers, and staff, I'm committed to eliminating outdated and offensive stereotypes of Asians, including Yellowface, on our stages. As of 2017, almost every major American ballet company has signed the pledge. Phil says that their work at Final Bow is the opposite of cancel culture. Instead, Gina and Phil have worked to advise performing arts groups on striking a balance of maintaining the integrity of works from the classical Western canon while updating outdated representations of Asians on stage. In other words, they advocate for keeping the elements you know and love while moving these works forward to appeal to 21st century diverse audiences. Phil and I will talk more about that in our interview. Phil and Gina have presented talks on things like yellowface and orientalism in dance at museums, ballet schools, ballet companies, and higher educational institutions. Final Bow for Yellowface was named a Next 50 Arts Leader by the Kennedy Center in 2022. Phil is also a writer who has authored two books, one by the same name as the organization titled Final Bow for Yellowface, Dancing Between Intention and Impact. The book examines the portrayal of Asian characters in ballet and the movement to revise outdated and offensive representations that appear on stage. His second book, Banishing Orientalism, Dancing Between Exotic and Familiar, discusses how arts organizations can move away from cultural appropriation and toward cultural representation with their creative works. As a choreographer, he's reimagined works like Ballet de Porcelain, an 18th century ballet pantomime also known as the Teapot Prince, in collaboration with Meredith Martin, Associate Professor of Art History at New York University. That project premiered at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in December 2021 and toured throughout 2022. As a stage director, he most recently directed his first opera, a reimagining of Puccini's 1904 opera Madama Butterfly. This Boston Lyric Opera production was shown at Boston's Emerson Colonial Theater in September of this year. And Phil says he's now focusing on his next project, reworking the classical ballet La Bayadere, in collaboration with dance historian Doug Fullington and the Indiana University Ballet Theater. The piece is set to debut at the Musical Arts Center in Bloomington, Indiana next year. We'll talk about that in our interview, too. 
As if he's not busy enough, Phil is also president of the Gold Standard Arts Foundation, an organization that works to champion Asian voices in dance and the arts. He's held fellowships with NYU, the Manhattan School of Music, New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, Harvard, and Drexel University. He served as the executive editor for Flat Magazine and on the advisory board of Dance Magazine, and he was a Benedict Distinguished Visiting Professor of Dance at Carleton College in fall 2022. Are you exhausted yet? <laughs> I am just saying all of that. Like I said, Phil is doing so many good things for the world of ballet and beyond, and especially at a time when theater, dance, and arts organizations are working hard to bounce back from pandemic setbacks. I'm so grateful people like him and Gina are doing this work and helping the arts continue to thrive. By the way, he talks about his own experiences as an Asian American during the COVID-19 pandemic and how that fueled his reflections and research when reworking Madama Butterfly. It's such a fascinating conversation. I learned so much, and I could have talked to him for several hours probably, but I kept it to one. <laughs> Check out what Phil had to say. Monday to you too. Hopefully it isn't too stressful of a Monday. All, all good. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Of course. Um, I know that you're based in New York, but you just finished working on your latest project in Boston. Is that right? Yeah. I just um, finished directing my first opera, um, uh, which opened Boston New York opera season. Uh, we did Madame Butterfly, which closed last Sunday. Oh, wow. That's great. How did everything go? I wish I could have made it to a show. I heard it was beautiful. Yeah, it was, um, I don't know, I'm still processing. It was such a beautiful experience. I feel like um, something shifted and, I don't know, in my work as an artist and um, just working with an incredible team over there. I'm a great cast. Uh, the company support has been great. Um, and just given the freedom to reimagine this work and also just being in this music um, has been really transformative. And then just to get the response from um, especially Asian American folks saying like, this was the first time I didn't cringe at Madame Butterfly or this, you know, I really felt like this, this version of it had a lot more integrity or this version allowed me to appreciate the music in a new way um, that was just really impactful. So I'm still, I'm still sitting with that, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's also definitely beautiful coming from ballet and seeing how things are done differently and how things are like sort of the same and where we can learn from each other. Um, that's also just behind the scenes has also been interesting. Um, but yeah, it was an incredible experience. Um, highly recommend it for anybody who wants to, to make opera. Give it, a, give it a try. Oh yeah, that sounds amazing. How gratifying to hear from the audience how impactful it was. And I was going to ask you if there was anything different because I know it was your first time directing an opera. If there was anything different about that versus some of the ballets that you worked on or anything you learned. Yeah. Um, so we did an incredible process at VLO, which, um, you know, I, I'd never done before, which was working with uh, Dr. Chris Hamm. Um, she's an incredible um, professor in, in psychology and she created this um, sort of group session with the cast where we met um, on the first day, we met midway through the process and we met after closing night to really examine um, the process, you know, what, what it's like being nomadic opera singers and performers 
what does it take to be vulnerable as artists? Um, and then how do we feel, how do we talk to each other and get to know each other? And, you know, just having that day one, um, we had intimacy coordinators, we had um, a, a therapist on site, and actually a few of the cast members told me that they, they actually took advantage of some of these resources. You know, because we're on the road, we all have outside careers, outside jobs, um, outside families. And it's it's really hard to then go into this place where you're performing really intense emotional things when you're away from your support system. So creating an environment that supported the artistic work and created an incredible amount of vulnerability and trust and you know positive communications with the cast. Um, you know, I think that's the part that the audience doesn't see, but you know, when they, they see the chemistry in a cast, they they you know, they can feel it. And I think just having that process has been um I don't know, it was, was deeply impactful and moving and um, just different than the way we usually do things. So that I was really grateful yeah. that BLO had the resources for us to um, actually do that. It's, it's not common, but I think it should be part of our best practice if we want to get the most out of the artist. Because my goodness, the, the time I spent not dealing with drama or, um, <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. or, or getting artists, getting them to actually commit to doing um, to going to an uncomfortable or scary place like it, it was just such a small investment of time but just the artistic payoff and the quality of the work um, I think is much more real and has much more integrity and especially if we're trying to reach new audiences and get opera to be not just like arc and bark but real relatable urgent radical feelings emotions um, that normal people who aren't musicologists can immediately feel in their gut. I think creating that, that, that chemistry and that storytelling, that's something that we sort of did with, that was different. Um, it was also fun working with the chorus um, as, a, as a choreographer. You know, I love sculpting with people and, and movement and how do we tell stories with bodies, um, with the music and, and counterpoint to the music. Um, you know, an example of that is we had um, brilliant dances by, by Michael Sakamoto. Um, you know, when Pinkerton at the top of the, the opera singing about how great it is to be American and sort of this imperial song, we, we this aria, and then we have these, um, you know, these these two Asian American cowboys, a cowboy and a cowgirl, um, or you know, the nightclub performers sort of dancing around him, and it's it's in counterpoint to what Pinkerton is saying, but then all of a sudden you see something different in how a dance or how um, how a chorus can maybe shape the meaning of what. The words were there so there were there were lots of um i really enjoyed playing with the words and playing with the text and um you know having having little moments like that um you know which which is the choreographer i think is part of the process um organically but maybe um you know in terms of a movement perspective um i guess another thing that was different was uh, the singers really go text first, whereas dancers go music first. Like, I can't imagine running a rehearsal where you're just, like, not always dancing with music. Um, because, you know, it's it's so much about it, of what you're doing is your body isn't responding to it. And so you need to practice responding to what it is. Um, and the singer is just finding that emotional journey and going text first and then only plugging in the singing later and just working much faster that way because they they just it was easier for them to figure out the beats without the music because they already knew the music so well. Oh, so just, interesting. you know, interesting, interesting between, you know, dance and, and opera that was um, just maybe a different, a different process. So just treating it more like a play as opposed to a ballet in some ways. 
Yeah. Well, that's really cool to hear about um, your experience and how it sort of intersected with your experience as a choreographer. But also, that's something I've never even thought about, all of those resources that were available, you know, the therapists and the intimacy coordinators. I think, you know, you're right, just the physicality of doing a show like that is a lot on top of the fact that it's such an emotional experience for the actors and the performers. And as an audience member, I think you do really feel that when a show, um, you know, takes it to that next level and really invests in making sure it's a collaborative experience for everyone involved. Um, and the other thing I was curious about, you know, I know that you sort of reimagined this opera. Um, there were some things that you changed, some things that you retained, but how do you go about, you know, taking a show that's rooted in, you know, nearly 150 years of history and um, sort of reimagining it to bring it to a 21st century audience? You know, how, what questions do you ask yourself? How do you decide what to retain versus, you know, what you might want to update? I'm just curious how that process works. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I have to give a shout-out to Nina Yoshida Nelson. She's um, a mezzo-soprano. She's sung over 200 performances of Suzuki um, all over the world, and she's the co-founder of the Asian Opera Alliance. And she served as the dramaturg with me on this process. So, you know, essentially my, um, you know, working with Nina in tandem, basically over the last, like, two years to, like, unpack every line of, of the of the opera, you know, bar by bar, what is going on here? What is it supposed to be? And then the integral question, which drives my creative practices, asking the question, what else could it be? So, you know, when you're like a little kid, you know, like a pen, it's like, it's not just a pen, it's like a sword and a lightsaber and a magic wand and a rocket ship, right? Like, but it's still just a pen, right? And so that's part of that game for me. It's like, okay, we have what it is. Okay, so first we have to define what it is. And then the second question is, what else could it be, right? So looking at Butterfly, what is the story here? What are the themes? What are the characters? What are the, the power dynamics? What is the arc of the tragedy? Um, what's, what's Puccini trying to say? Um, all of those things were first. We had to figure out what it is. What, you know, like, you know, when you go to the doctor's office, you have to figure out, okay, so what is it? What, what is it? Right. Um, BLO is incredibly supportive here because um, we actually, this has been like three years coming. We've been working on this production. Um, it started in 2020 when um, BLO realized that they weren't in a place to do a production of Madama Butterfly with integrity, um, considering that, you know, Asian people were, were being scapegoated for this global pandemic and being spat on and followed home and murdered and stuff. And so um, they took a pause and, and they brought me in to lead um you know, the butterfly process, which is, which is what it's called. It's a free resource on the BLO's website. Um, and, you know, it was essentially asking the question, like, what's the problem with butterfly and what's the potential future for this work? Um, you know, we've just heard overwhelmingly people saying like, please don't cancel butterfly, you know, uh, and, and it's everyone from conservative folks to Asian singers themselves who would lose a tremendous amount of work if this opera wasn't programmed. Um, and the Asian Opera Alliance has some great statistics about um, what happens when an opera company uh, programs Madama Butterfly in terms of the amount of work and the amount of increase of diversity for Asian artists oh. in a particular season. So there's a lot of interesting data out there that really shows you, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the economics behind Madama Butterfly as well. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm all for, you know, uh, my, my, my process is really, you know, the opposite of cancel culture. I really try to say, okay, so there's something here of artistic merit, in this case, really beautiful music, um, you know, but let's not cancel it. It'll, let's say, okay, if the music is, is the rule, is that's, that's what has to stay, then what is the other way to do the music? 
you know, you could do it as a concert version. That's one, that's one way to do Madame Butterfly, right? You know, but how's it, what's another way to stage it um, so that you can have the music. And so that became the, the guardrails, the butterfly process um, became the guardrails. And I don't know, I've never seen opera companies, again, dedicate resources to actually bring together scholars, historians, performers, directors, um, artists to really unpack the work from, you know, a myriad of different angles. So looking at it from um, the history of the opera itself, the tropes of women and Asian people and Orientalism and Americans, you know, embedded in the work, um, you know, the dynamic of Oriental Orientalism itself. Okay, so when we have this diverse 21st century mixed culture where we do have Asians in the audience, when we pretend that Asia is this like fantasy fairyland or abstract place, when it's actually like a very real culture to some of us, how does that dissonance, how does that, that present a barrier when we're trying to bring in new audiences? So just all of those questions um, that, that were part of, of this process. And ultimately we realized that we wanted to recenter the, the Eurocentric view of in this case, both Americans and Japanese people who are both just as exotic to Italian Puccini, right? How do we decenter it from this Italian perspective and center an American perspective, right? Which includes all Americans, right? Um, including white Americans who are most, most don't identify as Europeans, right? You know, you might be Italian American or, or German American, but you're American, right? Um, so how do we decenter Europe was, was sort of the, the, the next question. Um, so figuring out, yeah, okay, so so what is what is it first? Well, okay, Chocho-san, Madame Butterfly, is is a geisha, you know. So what's a geisha? It's an artist, right? A performer, okay. And the the thinking about the the setting for um, for this this original opera in Puccini's time, the sort of defining the the most powerful cultural moment between you know, the West and, and Japan was, you know, Commodore Perry and sort of the forced opening of Japan. Um, and so that was sort of captured the, the Western imagination. So of course, a story set there would make a lot of sense. Um, we've had an extra, as you say, 150 years of history since, um, 120, 30 years of history since this opera premiered. Um, and so, you know, we've had a changed relationship with Japan since then, a culturally changed relationship. And probably for us, the, the biggest defining moment with Japan is probably World War II, right? The bombing of Pearl Harbor, um, you know, all of all of the things that, that, that have since shaped Asian geopolitics, you know, American relations has been around where what was happening around World War II, right? Even to this day, right? So um, there are people who are alive Japanese Americans who were incarcerated in camps, you know, so this is a living memory of this period, um, as it would have been for Puccini's time with, you know, the opening of Japan. So um, it just felt like a, a better place to center that story. Um, it was also a time when there was um, sort of a larger increase in the sort of anti-Asian-ness, right? Japanese people were seen as like the Nazis of the East. And so just my own lived experience of being spat on during COVID and just realizing that our maybe our acceptance of Asian Americans is really just a thin veneer in our society, right? Like a, a global pandemic just shows us, oh, there's actually a lot of people who are very okay with us not being here. Um, you know, that's what, that's what the pandemic sort of revealed. And um, so how do we, how do we do this opera when that's the lived experience of Asian Americans? Well, that's literally my lived experience. Um, 
And so that was the other place of reflection. And so I was haunted by um, these images in the 40s of um, both, a, a, you know, there's a Dorothy Lang photo of a storefront in Oakland, California, um, with this, the words, I am American across. So like, you know, this idea of Asians still figuring out, okay, well, when someone tells me to go back to my own country, you know, what does that mean? You know, I'm American. Um, you know, so again, bringing that into our production of Butterfly, when Pinkerton's singing about being American, he's there's dancing Asian American cowboys dancing around him, you know, so that's, that's the emotional thread between how I'm feeling and what this work can say um, with an Asian American perspective centered. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I was also privileged enough to do a, um, to host a Q&A at Lincoln Center um, with, after a screening of Arthur Dong's uh, Forbidden City USA. Uh, Arthur Dong's an incredible uh, filmmaker and produced this documentary. It's brilliant. It's, it's under an hour. Uh, highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in, in, um, in this history. But basically, uh, from the 20s to the 60s, there were these, these nightclubs in San Francisco Chinatown that were, um, you know, the Asian performers were excluded from the white spaces, so they created their own nightclubs, and they were quite subversive in their their acts. You know, they'd say like, "Oh, yeah, come see some, you know, the Oriental girls look a little bit different. You know, come on down to Chinatown." And um, and then once you got there, they were just like American girls doing the Charleston, or like the same like dances that you'd see in the white clubs. They just happened to be, you know, Asian American, Chinese American, um, and so again, just seeing that richness and clicking, aha, okay, so a geisha would be a jazz singer in the 40s in one of these nightclubs. And if she's Japanese, um, she would probably be hiding her identity, you know, and what happens when it's revealed and then her community turns against her. Um, and then what happens when the opera calls for a rich, beautiful, opulent act one, and then a desolate and bare and sad act two and act three. So of course it made sense to, to set act two and act three and, um, in a Japanese incarceration camp. So um, just working with, um, you know, some incredible uh, resources, historians, family stories. Um, Nina's family was incarcerated. Michael Sakamoto, our choreographer's family, was incarcerated. So they had real family ties. Um, Keiko Oral, who's um, played our one of our butterflies in the production, um, her family was also incarcerated. And so just having those family ties and being able to include those stories, real stories um was also just extremely powerful as well and so yeah I, I think that that was um our goal was to keep the music intact but how could we tell a new story um and yeah there were there were things we did change like there's a there's a part uh you know at the the top of the opera where pinkerton sharpless would kind of go like oh how old are you to to chocho san and she's how are you 10 you know they think she's 10 um, and she goes, oh, higher. And um, and they say, you know, 20. And she says, oh, I'm already old. I'm just 15. And Pinkerton says, 15, let's get married already so we can go to bed together, right? That's like, that's the gist, right? And that's like, yeah, it villainizes Pinkerton. And like, that's part of his character, but also for a contemporary audience, it literally just like takes you right out of the story. It's not something you say like, oh, well, that's just how it is in Japan. It's like, ooh, this is like gross. And like, and that's, if that's like how you open the opera, it, that's that's surely not what Puccini wanted. Um, and so in our version, it instead becomes like a guessing game where um, the chorus is actually asking Pinkerton, okay, he's up on stage, he's he's getting married. And they're like, all right, pretty, pretty boy. Like, how how old are you? Like 10? Come on, no, he's, he's 20, you know, like, and so 
um, again, it then it takes on a different meaning, um, you know, when it's in a slightly different context and we don't have to change the Puccini. So that's, um, you know, that again was part of this like line by line process of how could we keep that line but make it feel a little bit differently or change the dynamic a little bit. Well, it's so interesting to learn about your process. It sounds like it was such a personal and deeply emotional experience for everyone involved, you know, whether it was the cast or, you know, everyone working on the show, the audiences. And I think you just did such an incredible job. So it's really cool to learn about, you know, how this all came together. Um, you know, and I'm just such a huge fan of all the work that you're doing. I have so many questions for you. Um, sure. But before we get into it, I just wanted to tell you that we actually have met once before. It was a really long time ago. It was like 10 years ago. Oh, my um, goodness. Where? Yeah. So I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. I live in New Jersey now. Okay. I was really involved in the dance program at my college, and one of the former dance instructors there at Kent State, um, her name was Jessica. She um, founded oh, this really course. great nonprofit, yeah, Valley in the City. Yeah, um, we premiered a, a work by Joshua Beamish there with Ashley yeah. Bowder. Oh my yeah, goodness. Yeah. Like, that is a throwback. Yeah, I know. Such a throwback. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. I remember you and Ashley Bowder um, from New York City Ballet were teaching a master class. And because I knew Jessica, she invited um, me and my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, out to dinner with all of you guys after the class. And it was so great getting to meet you. And that was my first introduction to your work. And I've just been following everything you've done ever since. So oh. I just wanted to tell you that. <laughs> Very sweet. I mean, I, I love a good Ohio girl. My mom's from Toledo, so. You know. Oh, no way. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love Ohio. And I know you've done so much great work, Um, you know, advocating for Asian culture within ballet and really anyone who feels misrepresented within the ballet community. Um, I know that you co-founded the organization Final Bow for Yellow Face along with New York City Ballet soloist Georgina Paskogin. Um, and I was curious how your career as, you know, a professional ballet dancer and choreographer and stage director sort of translated to the activism and the work that you're doing now and, you know, how that all sort of came together. Yeah, I don't know. And I think maybe the activism came first. Well, I think the dancing came first. You, know, you have to be like a little kid to start dancing. So the dancing came first. But um, the activism actually came um, quite by accident when, uh, you know, my, my good friend, as you say, Gina Peskogan, um, she was a soloist with New York City Ballet. Um, now she's a producer on Here Lies Love on Broadway. So, um, so, so we're still, we're still now, you know, running, running around doing different things, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, she was in a diversity committee meeting um, at New York City Ballet. And they, one of the things that came up was the, the Nutcracker, um, you know, the, the issues of how different nationalities are represented in the second act of the Nutcracker when, you know, the little girl Marie goes to the Kingdom Suites and she meets all these different, you know, candies that are representative of like different countries. And some of the countries are, uh, you know, a little bit more racist than other countries uh, and how they're represented because, you know, some were closer to home, you know, like the European countries, the countries that helped develop ballet as an art form, you know, like the Russian dance is probably going to be a little less racist than the, you know, since it's a Russian ballet, right? then say the Arabian dance, which has no contributions, no cultural contributions to ballet whatsoever. Um, so, you know, that conversation, um, and this was in 2017, led to, um, a few changes to the Nutcracker. And, you know, after that meeting, I called Gina. I said, you know, I think Peter's going to, you know, change the Nutcracker. And if, if Peter's willing to do it, then like, why not every other company in America, you know, especially since we as an art form are saying, yes, diversity, equity, inclusion, we want non-white people to come into this art form and feel included. Yet we're presenting these like caricatured Mickey Rooney, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Ching Chang Chong, stereotypes on our stages is like those two things don't work out like please help us as Asian people who are in ballet who love it who want it to continue like help us build audiences within our community but like not 
perpetuating these like outdated and offensive caricatures. And we're also not advocating to cancel the ballet. We're we're updating them to be more to be more inclusive. And a great example of that is um, you know, the the New York City Ballet version is also done by Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle. And they did, just debuted in, I think it's two years ago now, maybe three years ago, um, that same Chinese dance. But it's instead of like this, like, you know, rice paddy hat Fu Manchu guy in yellow face, it's now a green tea cricket that lives in a box and jumps. And like it, it's one of the most respectful, you know, uh, symbols in Chinese culture. It's spring. It's fun. It's a perfect gift for a young lady who's growing into womanhood. Um, and it's it's a potent Chinese symbol. It's not racist. And you can keep the choreography and keep the music. And it's not racist. So again, we're not saying don't do that dance or don't do the Nutcracker. Because we realize that we need that revenue from the Nutcracker to commission works by female choreographers who have been underrepresented, you know, black choreographers, whatever. We need that as part of the economic machine to keep dance going in that way. So, um, and Butterfly is also one of those works that's part of the, the economic model that also allows us to take larger artistic risks. So um, at this point, pretty much every major American ballet company signed this pledge that we put up at yellowface.org. Um, a lot of the European companies are, are having this conversation right now. Uh, actually, English National Ballet just uh, reaffirmed their commitment um, yesterday. <laughs> so, like, this is this is not like a, a conversation that is like abstract and like you know happened a long time ago. Like, we're still figuring out how to do this right um, in in the arts. So, to to and that's to represent each other better, to see each other better, to so we can build empathy. Right, good art um, if it's done right allows you to live in somebody else's shoes so like i don't i don't know what it's like to be a woman but maybe i can get a little bit of that perspective if i can live see the world through a female character in a movie or a book um, and that helps me build empathy right that's that's what the good arts are supposed to do um, and so you know how can we make these works that are popular that that but have these outdated representations of Asian people that might not do us any favors in a 21st century contemporary society? How do we not cancel it? How do we just make it better? Um, you know, so yeah, that's that's sort of the the process. And so it, it, that's the theme in my books. Um, it's a theme in, in the operas. It's a theme in my ballets. Um, you know, I premiered a piece called The Ballet de Porcelain, uh, working with a brilliant colleague, Meredith Martin at NYU. Um, about this Chinese sorcerer who lives on a blue island of porcelain and turns trespassers into porcelain. It's a ballet from 1739. It was like one of the first representations of Asian people on the ballet stage. But it was also like an allegory for Europe triumphing over Asia. So it was like kind of like pretty racist. And so again, how do we reimagine that? What else could it be? So that what else could it be is, is this big creative impetus. It's my creative North Star when I'm approaching these works. Um, and it's doing that within the framework of saying, okay, so this is Eurocentric. This is a European's perspective of the world. What else could it be so that it could be a global perspective, a multiracial nuanced perspective? And that's that's this idea of like cultural counterpoint. Um, you know, that, that something can be both what it originally is and also a critique of itself within itself at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what makes the art interesting and thought provoking and um radical and alive and so that's that's a lot of my focus
Yeah. And you said two things that I really love. Um, you know, I think that's so true when, you know, when I was in school reading about some of these things in history textbooks, I don't think it caused me to examine, you know, my privilege or my internalized bias or really think about any of these things as critically as when, you know, I go see a performance or I watch a film or read a book and it really helps me empathize with these characters and understand experiences of people that I've never had, but I can really get inside their heads. So I think that's so true and so important, you know, with the work that you're doing. And I think also, you know, I love what you mentioned about how it's not cancel culture. You know, you're not advocating for eliminating these shows altogether. Um, and, you know, you've spoken a lot about the importance of keeping tradition alive, you know, retaining some of the more meaningful elements, but still embracing changes, um, you know, with the elements that are maybe harmful to groups of people, you know, whether it's you know, Asians, people of color, you know, women. And I think that's such an important balance to be struck too, because there is a lot they, to retain about the shows that people love, but there's also a lot that could be updated for a 21st century audience, as we talked about. Um, you know, I heard you talking on another podcast, the Why Dance Matters podcast, that when you reimagine classical ballets, like you were talking about La Bayadere or, you know, the work that you've done with the Nutcracker, um, you include multiracial elements so that anybody can see themselves represented on stage. And I was curious if you could talk about why that representation is so important for the future of ballet and how not only companies, but also, you know, studios and individual teachers can foster an environment that supports that. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's we're coming up to this challenge where we have this repertory that is, you know, traditionally is Eurocentric, right? So it's you know, it's usually, and it's usually done by primarily white folks, right? Um, and dance companies are becoming more multiracial, right? And so we're seeing a change in, um, you know, pink tights as the norms is now not the norm anymore. That's not the center, right? Now it's, the idea is to achieve the best line of the leg. Um, it's better to try to match your skin tone. Right. And pink was pink was appropriate when everybody was white and that no longer works. Right. When you have a darker skinned dancer, it looks muddy and it looks it cuts off the body in a weird way. And so understanding that and understanding, OK, well, if it, it looks better this way, if it's supposed to look like she has this long line, actually matching her tights to her skin is actually going to do a better job of doing that and you know showing her artistry better. So that's that's this impetus. Right. Um, for this conversation. Um, yeah, you know, so thinking about this, this larger center, um, in ballet, uh, if, if our companies are getting more diverse, uh, and, and we want, we're still trying to represent all these different cultures, it just gets harder and harder to do that. And it gets messier and messier, you know, when you actually have dancers from those cultures being represented. Um, but the depictions that they're representing are from Europeans from, you know, 200 years ago, right? And that's starting to get messy or you have black dancers saying i'm not dancing the part of the slave like i'm not like it's beneath my dignity as a black person and it's not just the part of the slave that gets emancipated or any judgment about it it's just like oh he's just the slave and there's no we don't like it's just that that there's no nothing happens to him he's just the slave you know and um you know and you can see that and it's like okay so then how do we save it if it's worth saving um, and that's, I think, the big challenge. So um, our, our audiences also are getting, have to be younger and have to be more diverse. As a society, we're getting more multiracial. Um, so we can't just bank on, you know, older white donors to come and keep these art forms alive. And so that's also how the repertory has to keep shifting. Okay, so you want Indian people to come and become your donors? 
yeah, buy a dare and brown face isn't going to cut it, right? Um, so this that exact process, you know. But again, Bayadere is this great example of this 19th century classic. So how do we not just cancel it? Um, so I'm actually my next big project is I'm working with um, the brilliant Doug Fullington, um, who's a, a dance notation expert and a musicologist. Um, so we're going back to the notes um, from the the turn of the 20th century of Petty Paz Bayadere. Um, we've also handed over the Minkus score to um, Larry Moore. He's also incredible. Uh, he stage, uh, he reorchestrates a lot of the scores for um, the Cole Porter Estate and the Gershwin Estate and, and Rogers Hammerstein. So he's a, an expert on um, the sort of musical theater genre. Um, and we're setting the action in the 1920s in Hollywood. So it's this sort of Busby Berkeley fantasy. Um, and so Larry is reorchestrating the Minkus to sound like a big band jazz musical. Um, oh, cool. and it's, at, it's at the tempo that it was originally. So we're sort of sweeping away a lot of the old Soviet editions from the 40s and kind of going back to actually a more imperial production, a more with the, that sort of same speed and attack, um, you know, without the sort of Soviet influences. Um, so again, it'll be a, a sort of a very conservative production in that standpoint. But our approach, um, you know, they're literally dancing American cowboys. Um, and I love the, this cowboy because everybody's been a cowboy in American culture, right? Um, and it's also nuanced. It's, it's a little bit, it's a it's a fantasy. It's a little bit problematic, but they were, you know, literally every everybody who's come here has been a cowboy. It represents frontier and openness, and um, you know, so so it's a fun symbol to to play with as an American, as also especially as an American who grew up outside of America, and that was one of the big images of what it meant to be American this cowboy um so you know it's it's this melodrama that's like singing in the rain where you have nakia is like debbie reynolds and singing in the rain you know gene kelly is solar and um princess gamzadi is like lena lamont you know and then you have this this same melodramatic love of triangle uh, all the excuses for the big dances and processions um all the music and we're not doing brown face or doing weird hindu stuff <laughs> or um you know, it's 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 not a weird sexualization at the expense of these sort of quasi-Indian women. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's a way for us to preserve history and, and tradition and, and heritage um, without canceling it, but also be respectful to non-white folks. It, it does. It's not a neither or. And I think that that's what's. Um, I'd like to think is really special about my work. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited for that show. I love the updates that you're making. It sounds like it's going to be a great production. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, come see it. It's, yeah, it's uh, March 24th, uh, uh, sorry, March 29th, uh, 2024 at uh, in Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, perfect. Okay, I'll mark my calendar. And I know you mentioned you've done so much. And on top of that, you're also an author. You've written two books, um, your first book, Final Bow for Yellowface. Um, and then you have another book called Banishing Orientalism. And you've kind of spoken about how, as a Chinese American, it was important to you to write these books because it shows how we share our cultures with each other and use dance as an analogy. Um, you know, I really love that because, you know, there's this quote that sort of floats around social media sometimes that says dance gives us language for when words aren't enough. And, you know, I was curious how you see ballet as an effective way we kind of talked about this already but how to you know foster empathy and have these conversations that are difficult um, and sort of reach people in ways that might not be possible otherwise yeah I, I just think everybody has a body um and you don't need you don't need to know anything to appreciate you know good dance you know if you have a body 
you know, ideally, if it's really good, you'll just get it and you'll feel it. And there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of um, worry that people don't get it. And you literally just have to go and open your eyes and let it wash over you. And that's just how to have an experience with dance. And, and it's so if you can get your audience to that place where they're willing to accept that as the experience, um, it can be really beautiful and profound. And, and I found actually in this process with butterflies that same way. It's literally like you just have to paint them a picture and let the music wash over them, you know, and just just be open to it and let it let it do its thing and just watch it, watch it do its thing. Um, so yeah, you'd think that dance would be super accessible because that you don't need words. It can cross languages and cultures and, and um, it has a lot of potential. So I believe in that potential for dance. Um, yeah, you know, and, and I think that's that's why I think it's a, a beautiful form. It's, it's something that um, is relatable in that way. And there's nothing like it. You know, you, you, you go to see a movie or, um, you know, you watch something on Netflix, but there's nothing like watching another living body moving with nothing between you but air. And like your your body changes, your physical body changes when you see something like that, but it does not change when you're watching it on TV, you know, or watching a movie on TV. So, um, and just coming out of COVID and just realizing the importance of live performance and the arts and sitting in a theater together and experiencing something um, as a group, as a community, laughing together, crying together, um, in the dark together. Um, there's there's something very uh, soul nourishing that I think we were missing in COVID. But I really hope um, you know all your listeners are prioritizing going back and supporting the live arts because it's just it's such a human affirming experience that um, yeah I think we'd all see each other better. I think we'd all feel better if we had a little bit more of that in our lives and like prioritized as making time and space and resources to do that. So it's so important. You know, I've been going to see shows, you know, after COVID, the first time I saw um, a live show, I can't remember what show I saw, but I was just crying the whole time because I just missed being in a live theater so much. And, you know, I've been trying to go every month and see a different production, whether it's, you know, dance or musical theater. Um, I just think that's so important and so needed right now, you know, after the pandemic, when so many theaters are hurting. And I'm curious, we've talked a lot about the work that you're doing now, but if we can just rewind a little bit, I was wondering about your own background with ballet. You know, what was your first introduction to it? How did you get into it originally? So my, my mom was uh, flying back to Hong Kong. Um, and she, this was in the eighties and she was stuck in Tokyo. Um, and her seatmate was a dancer from the Hong Kong ballet and just sort of being stranded together. Uh, they just started talking and they became friends. So as a, a kid, I would just, my mom would take us to go see shows at the Hong Kong ballet. And, um, yeah, then I started dancing and, um, sort of on and off through, you know, middle school and high school and, um, and then college, and then moving to New York, and you know, um, yeah, it just sort of it just sort of happens, you know. Uh, every time I pushed it away, it kept coming back. So, um, you know, it, it's it's nice, and it's also I think part of a, it was nice to just be able to move, you know, when we moved from Hong Kong to to Berkeley, California, to also um, have that as a constant thing in my life was also I think really positive. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, you know. It's it's been nice. Also, I think my my time at um, at Ely, I was on, on scholarship at Alvin Ailey um, at the school, and 
just being in a space where whiteness wasn't centered, and that in this case, blackness was centered, um, you know, the faculty, the space, who was on the walls, um, you know, again, I was not centered, but it was nice to see that multiple centers were possible, you know, going from like, you know, studios where everybody was Chinese, studios where everyone was white, studios where folks were black, like it's just showing that it is possible to have different centers for dance. Um, so I think it, it's made this work really easy for me to just see it that way, which I think maybe folks who maybe just went to through one track might not have might not have seen it that way or might not see the potential for ballet in that same way. Right. Yeah. And I started this podcast because, you know, I danced my whole life all the way through college. And once I graduated from college, I wanted to continue with ballet. It was something that I was so passionate about. But I realized that as someone who wasn't pursuing it as a career, it became so much harder. There is such a lack of resources for dancers who are adults but are amateurs and just want to continue to be challenged, um, you know, and grow their technique without pursuing it as a career. And I'm thankful that things are changing. You know, there are some people doing great things to kind of bring ballet to everyone, which is, you know, why I wanted to start this podcast to talk to everybody who's trying to make ballet more inclusive. And, you know, I've spoken with a lot of adult dancers like me who aren't pro, but, you know, want to continue with their ballet journey. And a lot of the concerns that I hear are, you know, am I too old to do ballet or am I too inexperienced or do I not have the right body type? And I think, you know, as you were saying, a lot of those concerns kind of come from a place of feeling unseen. You know, you go to a ballet and you see all white dancers, you know, same body type, same age. Um, and you think, where do I fit in here? So I was curious um, what your advice would be to dancers like myself who maybe have those concerns and are scared to get started or to restart with ballet or, you know, what's the advice that you would share about how they can create a space for themselves? Yeah, you know, I've I've been struggling to get back to class myself. So this is like, it's I, it's and this is like a COVID thing, and that's that's just my that's my thing. It's just time. I've been on the road. You know, my career is different now, so I'm like I I'm just missing my daily bar. But my substitute is I, I run every day, so that's like, a, you know, but um, that sort of takes the the place of of that because um, I can do that from anywhere. But um, class. Class for me represents um, a place to make mistakes, which I feel like I don't always have in my normal life, to experiment, to play. Um, it's the time when my mind is quiet. Um, there's like literally nothing in my head and there's always something in my head. It's just about the music, feeling in touch with my body. Um, it feels like church, it feels spiritual. It, it, I feel grounded, I'm aware of my breath. Um, I'm aware of where I'm holding tension. Um, I, but, and it's, it's fun. I love a challenge. Um, I love it when it's hard. I love it when I can be in competition with just myself and how well I can do something. Um, yeah. And I love just dancing to beautiful music and I love the feeling of camaraderie of flying through the air with, you know, a few other friends. Um, so all of those things are great. And it's like, it, it, you can just it's like a yoga class it's like there there shouldn't be this fear of like oh i need to be a certain way or i need to be a professional i need to be any good at it it's not about that it's um you know you're everybody's on their own personal journey and the fact that we're all here and we're sharing the space and we're committed to doing this series of steps together that that, that that's enough that's okay i i love adults open classes. I love it. Actually, like I, um, I, I totally get this, like this fear of, 
oh my god when you're taking classy steps on broadway and like you're behind paloma herrera like at the bar you know and you know and, like you're like behind Wendy and you're like yeah right like come on guys like how am i supposed to focus now you know but um it can and it can feel that way it can feel like you're in these like scary spaces when you maybe like, don't know what you're doing um you might be new or ex- inexperienced but there is just a learning curve it's like learning a language right like you you just have to keep practicing and then you'll get better and better and that's part of what makes it frustrating and beautiful and hard and challenging and just the benefits of being that in touch with your body outside of class and how you feel the rest of the day, man, it's so good. It's so good. Um, so yeah, if you're, if you're an adult, if you're just like, how do I do this? I can't, I, I don't want to do it unless I'm really good. I don't want to do it unless I can go X times a week. I don't want, you know, like get, get over it, get over it and just go, just go yeah, and you'll feel it. better. Just do it. Just do it. You'll feel better. Um, even if you, even if it's scary, oh my God, isn't it great to like get out of your comfort zone and do something that scares you? It's so great. Do it. Just like love yourself enough and just do it. If you want to do it, if it's in your heart, if you feel like you want to do it, just do it. Yeah. I love that advice. Love yourself enough. That's so important. And I think also the more that you challenge yourself outside of your comfort zone, the more you realize you can, and it becomes easier. Um, and Plus one- also, you know, that Halloween it's, you know, it's, it's early October now. I don't know when this is, this is airing, but like Halloween is coming up, which means like you could probably actually get away with wearing a full tutu to class and no one will say a word because it's like, Oh, it's my Halloween costume. You know, yeah, so if that's exactly. part of the allure for you. you can, if you start going now, you'll, you'll feel like confident enough to like, wear a tutu by by the time Halloween rolls around. So it's your once a year excuse. So just letting you letting you know. I'll send you a picture of me wearing one. I was a leaping lizard a couple of years ago. So I had a full head to toe lizard costume and a full tutu. I love that idea. Yes, I would love to see a photo. That's awesome. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end. Just one thing I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I'm a journalist covering the financial services industry and, you know, in my day job and a lot of my work is focused on gender and racial inequality in the industries that I cover. Um, And what I found with industries like ballet that have been around for so long and are rooted in so much tradition is that change can be gradual. And I find myself sometimes feeling so defeated, like we've made so much progress, taken so many steps forward, and we've also taken steps back, and there's just so much to do all the time, you know, especially um, for me with issues of gender inequality, because it's so personal to me as a woman. And I was curious if you ever feel that way in your work, um, and how you sort of, how do you not let that overwhelm you and instead focus on doing what you can and letting that be enough to sort of push you forward as you continue to try to make ballet more inclusive? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. For me, it's um, my advocacy is a marathon. It's it's not a race. I think about it like doing your tondus, right? So like, you know, every day you have to do your tondus and at first you're not very good at it. And then you get better at it and you get stronger. And then a tondu becomes a degage, which becomes a grand jeté, which becomes dancing in your first nutcracker, which becomes dancing the lead in Swan Lake, you know? But at no point are you like, okay, I have a perfect tondu. I can stop doing tondus, right? The same for my advocacy, you know, same for your, an anti-racist practice. It's a it's a destination, I mean, a, a direction, not a destination. Um, and you still have to do your tandus, you do it every day, right? You do a little bit every day. You can, But then if you do that, you can rest without guilt. You can avoid burnout. Um, yeah, I, I think this work really shifted for me um, after the shooting in Atlanta uh, a couple years ago when I felt like everybody in the dance community like turned to me and Gina and they were like, okay, like what's the action item? Like what's the hashtag? And we were like, we're literally just trying to get you to stop doing yellow face. Like, what do you mean? Like what, what's the action item? And we just looked around and realized that like so many 
you know, we were all out there. We just weren't getting organized as Asian folks. You know, there are these, you know, centers for other groups, you know, Dance Theater of Harlem, Ballet Hispanico, Alvin Ailey. Um, but Asian folks don't have our own home, you know. And so we started the Gold Standard Arts Foundation. Um, you know, we, we called all of our, our Asian American friends who are in leadership positions in the arts and said, hey, like, we need to come together. We need to, like, create this hub. Um, so if you go, go, go to goldstandardarts.org. Um, you know, we have a membership program for Asian American creatives where we have monthly programs. Um, we're trying to offer commissioning support. Um, we're working together to build programming. So we actually have a week uh, um, uh, at the Northrop uh, in Minneapolis of um, it's Oakland Ballet, Ballet Met, and Washington Ballet doing all Asian choreography. Um, oh. And then we have a week at the Kennedy Center next June um, where it's going to be um, uh, Houston Ballet uh, Pacific Northwest Ballet, uh, Ballet West, uh, and Washington Ballet, and a couple not ready to be uh, announced, but special guest companies um, who will be appearing. Um, uh, and now that's in honor of uh, the choreographer Chu Sen Go, and that'll be at the Kennedy Center next June. And all of those companies will be doing um, work by Asian choreographers. So there's no Balanchine, there's no Nutcracker, there's no Swan Lake. Like we have our own repertory in these companies. So a lot of that these works were the seeds were planted in the aftermath of Atlanta and saying, okay, so you want to do Bayadere, you know, you want to do Nutcracker Chinese, but you've never hired an Asian choreographer. And now we have these companies who are, you know, there's just enough repertory that we can do full week-long festivals. So that's sort of the, the next direction that we're pushing this work. Um, you know, we need volunteers, we need we need funding, all of it goes to support AAPI creatives. So if you're interested, goldstandardarts.org. But um, that's really the next step of this work. And um, I think for me, taking it from Gina and I and two people on a website to now having, you know, a, a committed board and all these volunteers, um, we have a study, you know, a, a data committee um, who is putting together a survey about the Asian American experience in ballet, you know, and so we did a survey uh, last year, we're going to repeat it again, but we're, so we're just seeing like, where is the system broken? Um, like where are the Asian folks, why aren't we seeing them or why are we seeing only certain Asians and not others um, in in our, who get opportunities. So um, we're in the process of um, really looking at this work and then being able to offer real policy recommendations for the field in terms of how do we actually retain Asian American talent? How do we develop and retain Asian American talent creative? So it's composers, it's choreographers, it's dancers, it's artistic directors, it's executive directors, it's board members. Um, and so that's that's the sort of next step of this equation that we're really looking at, at chewing on. Sounds like you're doing so much great work and you have so many exciting things ahead. And I'll definitely include a link. Yeah, gold, goldstandardarts.org. Goldstandardarts.org. I'll include a link to that in the show notes, definitely, if people want to you know, donate or volunteer or get involved in any way. And I don't want to take up too much of your time. We do have um, we have a section on the podcast that I call the Petite Allegro section. It's just a bunch okay, of let's do fun, quick questions. Let's do it. <laughs> this from your perspective as a dancer or choreographer or director however you want but what's the go-to item that you have to have at every rehearsal or class oh um my um theragun 
Oh, those are so important. Is there a dancer or a teacher who has inspired you or mentored you throughout your career? Oh. Um, I really look up to David Henry Huang. He's a playwright. Um, he was just really instrumental in leading the way about how do we talk about yellow face and Orientalism in the performance. He's one of my artistic advisors, he's one of our, our board members. Um, just his commitment to this work in the field and then also taking the time to um, work with us as sort of next generation who's doing this has been just um, incredibly meaningful. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's been a privilege. Is there any style of dance that you haven't tried but you want to eventually? Ooh, um, I'm very, I'm very curious about classical Indian dance. Um, and I want to know the nuances between the different styles, but I want to know them in my body. I want to feel what that feels like. Cause I just, I love comparative things like that. So yeah. um, classical Indian dance is a, a frontier that I am um, investigating, investigating. Also um, hula, oh, like, yes. it's, it's so beautiful. And I'm like, yeah. how do I, how do I, try that in my body um also they're they're still recovering in maui so another place to send your donations if you if you need if you if you are able to they're still recovering as a community so yeah absolutely they need all the help they can get so anything anybody can do um and then is there a story whether it's you know a novel a film or maybe a play that you'd like to adapt into a ballet but haven't yet i mean like mikado is high on my list um it's one of my favorite Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. It's like really problematic the way it's traditionally done, usually in yellow face, but it's just like so funny and the music is so good. So like, um, and I've got a great swing and swing at that one. I've got a great way to, to twist that one around. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, it, it seems to be that I'm also starting to get opportunities to just do non-Orientalist work. And I think that's also interesting and fun too, you know, um, just a regular opera that isn't, about race or isn't about being Asian or, you know, it's just another opera or just another ballet. So, um, yeah, those are, those are sort of, those projects are coming down the pipeline. And so just excited to, to keep going. Yeah, that is exciting. That's awesome. I know it's, it's confusing because we're recording in early October, but this episode is slated for December. So I was curious if there are any. Oh, other... <laughs> so no Halloween, no Halloween. No Halloween, no, but you can still wear your tutus <laughs> to class. Well, you I feel like then you're in like nutcracker season and then like everyone's just in the mood. So like you could yeah. just be like, well, I was just having a bad day and I just need to do this for myself. And I feel like no teacher would be like, no, you can't do that. Yeah, exactly. Who's going to tell you no? Yeah. Who's going to tell you no? Right. Live your life. <laughs> Are there any holiday traditions that you look forward to every year? Ooh, in December? Um, December for me is like, it's just been like a weird thing because I've had nutcracker for so many years. Yeah. And then like, not doing Nutcracker and being able to like go skiing with my family is like weird. Um, I always have this like sigh of relief, um, you know, after Nutcracker season's over because it's usually like a yellow face blitz, you know, for us or for Gina and I. Yeah. Um, actually, one of my favorite holiday traditions is Gina's birthday is um, in early December. And we there's usually like a big party and there's usually dancing and she's usually wearing something outrageous and um it's just a lot of fun I really enjoy 
um, celebrating Gina and celebrating our friendship. And her birthday is always like a festive time to do it. And there was one year in particular, she wore, she had a, a brace, a knee brace on because she just had surgery. And so we put Christmas tree lights in it. So like, you know, we have a good time. We have a good time. Oh, that sounds like a yeah. blast. That's awesome. That's my favorite. That, that, I would say that's my favorite holiday tradition, the celebrating Gina's birthday. Yeah, and Gina, I don't know if you're listening, but if she ever wants to pop on the podcast, you know, the adult studio, the adult ballet studio's door is always open. She she would she would talk to you about Here Lies Love if you wanna if you wanna talk about that. She oh, that would be amazing. I would love that. And then the last question, I ask everybody who comes on the podcast, just in a perfect world, what would ballet look like, or what would you want it to be? Ooh, you know, I just love the fervor of how ballet has historically been embraced in America, like in the, you know, in the sixties and seventies, but also how it is in other cultures, like in, in Russia and in Cuba, and like in um, like where people are just like, they know their dancers, they sleep outside of the theater to buy tickets. They, you know, they all know everything that, you know, like I miss that culture and I miss ballet being like mainstream like that, where people know about it. People are engaged with it. Um, it, where it just doesn't feel scary, where it feels yeah. accessible and fun and relevant and um, like socially exciting. Yeah, I love that. I'm such a fangirl with ballet. I would totally sleep outside the theater <laughs> to get tickets if I didn't right. train and we, myself. And we need, we, we need like we need like more of that, but we also need like dance worth sleeping outside the theater for, right? Yes, exactly. And this has been such a great conversation. Where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Yeah, they can just find me um, at Final Bow for Yellow Face on Instagram. Perfect. Well, I'll include a link to that. Nice and easy. As well. Yeah, easy to remember. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I can't tell you how much of it course. means to me. I've really enjoyed this of conversation. Course. My absolute pleasure. Um, and stay in touch. We'll see you at Bye Adair. I love talking to Phil and can't wait for his updated version of La Bye Adair next year. I thought his advice for adult dancers was great. Just do it. Just get into a studio for your daily or weekly bar. It's so important and it feels so good. It's the holidays. Wear a tutu if you want to. Just do it. He's right. We talked about so much during the interview, but we focused a lot of the discussion on what he's doing for the Asian community in ballet. I'm including links in the podcast description to the Gold Standard Arts Foundation, where Phil is president, and to the organization he and Gina co-founded, Final Bow for Yellowface. Whether it's through donations or spreading awareness, please consider giving what you can to these great organizations who are doing such important work for the arts. There are also plenty of organizations working to stop hate and discrimination against Asian Americans. I'm including a link to one, Stop AAPI Hate, that works to end racism against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the description. And Phil mentioned during our interview something that's so true, that the people of Maui are still hurting from the devastating wildfires that took place earlier this fall. There are plenty of ways to donate or help Maui with its recovery efforts. The Hawaii Community Foundation is one through its Maui Strong Fund. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. Especially with the holiday season underway, hopefully if you're looking for ways to give, this can get you started. But there are plenty of other ways as well. And remember that you can do good all year long. The work that Phil's doing is a testament to that. Finally, as we close out our final episode of this year, I just wanted to say thank you to all of our guests, listeners, and supporters of this podcast for doing so much to support ballet and the arts. It's so important, especially at a difficult time economically after the pandemic, to help art forms like dance continue to thrive. I've been so inspired by this community of dancers and people who love the arts that I've met through this podcast, and I'm really looking forward to what next year brings for the Adult Ballet Studio. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations as much as I have. If you like this podcast and you don't mind taking a moment to rate and review it on your platform of choice, it would help us out so much. 
and it means a lot to hear from you, our listeners, about what you enjoy. There's a question box below each episode on Spotify that asks who should join the studio next. I would love to know who you'd like to hear from in 2024. Or if it's easier, just send me an email at theadultballetstudio at gmail.com and tell me what you like, any questions you have, things you'd like to see in 2024, all of it. And of course, you can find me on Instagram at eblossfield. Thanks so much to Phil for such a great conversation to close out this year, and thanks to all of you for helping this podcast grow in just a few short months. Our first episode of 2024 will be on January 2nd, and we have another great guest, so you won't want to miss it. In the meantime, happy holidays however you celebrate. Keep dancing and see you at the bar.